I think we're at 1700 right now. And I, I know that we're a few hundred short. Right. And that means you're running call to call, right? You know, just, you know, our chief, our, our chief usually, uh, you know, he always says, you know, one call at a time, you know, do the best that you can do on that one call and then move on to the, move on to the next call. Right. Don't rush it. Um, you know, it's, it's the, uh, it's the quality of, of, you know, how we, how we work, not how many calls we could get done in, in, in the shift. Do you guys have a, a 10, 100 code? Like no, no I'm sorry, say that again. Do you have a 10, 100 code code where radio code that, you know, no units available? Uh, no, not, we don't have that, that code. You, they, you, the dispatcher will usually kind of prioritize if there's a priority call, you know, somebody's going to, somebody's going to head that way and, and, uh, everything else just kind of gets in the queue stacks up. Yep. So just uh, one, one, one unit cars, or do you guys ride doubles? Uh, how does that work? It, and it depends. Some people, some people like driving by them, you know, riding by themselves. Um, some people king up, which basically means, you know, you have a partner in the car. Um, I, I always enjoyed having a partner in the car cause you, you know, one car, we could go to, we could go to one call, we can handle it. I don't have to wait for my backup. And usually the, you know, all the partners that I've always worked with, we've, we've, uh, we've meshed really, really well. So it, it was fun. You know, it's, it's fun to have somebody like that in the car with you all day. Yeah. Plus you, the, the camaraderie that goes along with it in law enforcement is just, I mean, we all know that it's just unbelievable. It's hard to explain to people that haven't been in law enforcement, just how close that camaraderie is. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and, uh, you know, even to the point where you, you know, you know, you know, you know, your squad mates, uh, um, habits, you know, you know, you know, Hey, uh, you're going to have to hit the head in a little bit. You're gonna have to use the restroom in a little bit. Right. Uh, um, you know, you know, their family, you know, their, their family dynamic, uh, you get invited to their, you know, kids birthday parties and, and, uh, you know, we go out to eat, eat lunch during work and we go out after work and we just, there's so much time that you spend with, uh, with your squad. And those are like lifelong, you know, relationships that you, that oh, you yeah. build. Yeah. Yeah. They talk about law enforcement and the military are like, they're, the, you know, they're the type of people that talk shit to your face and say good things behind your back. Otherwise some people say good things to your face and talk shit behind your back. So, <laughs> um, now are you a practical joker? I, I joke around a lot. I, I, I have to have, you have to have a sense of humor in this, in this profession anyways. Um, so otherwise, do you have a crowning achievement that you have done something you want to brag about, uh, on air that we can tell people, is there, is there any good thing, uh, that you have pulled on somebody? Um, are you, what are you thinking? Have the statute of limitations expired? What? Yeah, I don't <laughs> think they've expired yet. <laughs> I'm, we're always joking around. Well, you know, one of the things that I, I, I always do with, with my buddy, Mike, Mike Muniz, um, and he's, he's going to be uh, one of the main characters in, in, in my story, but you know, he, uh, he gets, he gets easily, uh, startled and scared, right? You, I mean, you could just, uh, you could just not a walk. good trait for a cop, man. Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, you could just walk up to him and go "boo," and he'll like jump up. And uh, so, what I would always do, and, and I still do to this day, I, you know, whenever I see him, you know, I try to sneak up on him, and you know, I'll, or I'll set the, I'll set my phone up and start recording, and I'll go up and 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 scare him when he's you know not expecting it. And then I then I blast it to all of our friends. And every couple of months, I'll find like an old video of him getting frightened, and I'll you know I'll send it out to send it out to everybody and no and mercy like, 
he's like, damn, dude, how many of these videos you have? I said, I have a lot. bro. <laughs> I have a lot. I have a lot of these videos. So. It's a target rich environment. I think that line was, uh, might've been come out of Top Gun, uh, which was started in San Diego there. So, um, well, let's start working into, uh, what we're going to talk about today. So, um, you're on the street now when, how long are you on the street before the first officer involved shooting happens? How, how many years have you got? And, you know, kind of give us the setup, you know, are you writing a, you got a partner at that time you by yourself, what's going on? Yeah. So I, I, I have a partner, um, May 27th of 2018. I was only, I was only eight months out of phase training. So I had just been, uh, assigned to Southern division eight months prior. And when I, uh, I, you know, I always tell people when I first started at Southern division, I hit the ground running, you know, I was, I was, turning and burning and making things happen oh yeah you know i was i was uh getting involved in anything and everything uh foot pursuits vehicle pursuits you know you run into any of your old homies from uh, back in the hood you know what there was some times where i ran into a couple of people uh that i knew or some people that that recognized me from high school you got to remember you know by the time i graduated high school and i started the police you know uh working at southern division what you know 10 years already had had passed. So, you know, not everybody looks the same, but yeah, there was a couple of people that I ran into or that recognized me and they're like, how the hell did you become a cop? I was like, <laughs> I don't know. I kept trying. <laughs> I kept trying. So yeah, but, uh, yeah. So the, um, uh, I don't even remember where I just, well, I was just talking. No, about we were just right talking now. about, um, you were turning and burning, you know, you're just eight months out of phase training. So you've been, you've been out of phase phase four training. You're cut loose. You're on your own now, eight months into the job. Yeah. And I was, again, I was, uh, you know, getting involved in everything and, and life was, life was so fun. Work was fun. I loved coming to work every single day. Cause it was like, there was always something going. It felt like every single day I was getting in a foot pursuit. I was getting in a vehicle pursuit. We were getting a gun, we we're getting dope. And, uh, and it was, it was fun. So May 27th of 2018. Oh, go ahead. I'm Real quick, before you do that, set the stage. Tell us about Southern Division. You say that. So what kind of an area is it, you know, compared to the other divisions in terms of types of crime and stuff like that? Kind of paint the picture for us what Southern Division is like. Yeah. So Southern Division is, uh, you know, the, the main area is San Isidro. Um, our southern border or our southern neighbor. There's is, a big is, port of entry there too, right? Right. I think it's I think it's the largest port of entry in the U.S. I, I yeah, believe the, land, the largest land border. Yeah, San right. Sidro, Yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, our southern neighbor is Tijuana. Our northern neighbor is the city of Chula Vista. So, you know, it's it's a it's a slower uh, division, but there's so much proactivity and if you want if you want to get into something you can i mean the dope is there the gangsters are there the guns are there um you know people from everywhere go down to tijuana on a friday night to to party right you'll get people from you know vegas and la and sacramento coming down so it's a uh, it's 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 active it's it's a uh, it's what you want to make out of it, it if you if you just want to handle radio calls, you can do that, and it's going to be on the slower side. If you want to get into something and hunt, uh, hunt for the bad guys, yeah, you can get into that easily as well. So what you're, was going you're right you. dead there on the Mexican border, right? I went down there one time for um, I don't know, still on the job with DEA, and um, we were having meetings, and they took us to Santa Cedar Port of Entry, and they they walked me right up to the gate, you know, and I've, I've got on a suit, and so do the, I'm with the bosses. And uh, I saw this guy just elbowing people out of the way so he could get right up in my face. 
and I'm looking at him. I mean, and the only thing separating us is the fence, you know. And, and I'm I looked at one of the guys. What the, what the hell's his problem here? And he said he's waiting for you to speak English because he's he's a he's a fluent English speaker, and he wants to know what you're talking about. I thought, well, damn. So you know, you start saying stupid stuff, and then he's like, "Fuck you, Gringo," and he walks away. Yeah, uh, uh, different, very different there. <laughs> so, so you got this stuff. So, um, it's so. What's the type of crime? What What's the like the meat and potatoes? You know, the the stuff that is routine for Southern Division. Was it property crime, drug crime, gang crime, or you get a mix of things? You get a yeah. It's, it's a it's a mix of it's a mix of everything. You know, it's not it's not one of the busiest commands um, at San Diego PD. There's not shootings and stabbings. You know, every single day, um, but. You know, they, it comes out. A lot of it is it's uh you know disturbance calls, you know fifty one fifty or you know the psych psychiatric calls, um, uh, check the welfare calls, transient calls. So that, I mean, it, there's a there's a mix of everything. So all right, so May twenty seventh, twenty eighteen. Just what kind of sh- what shift are you working? What's going on now? Let's just start setting the stage. Yeah, so May 27th, 2018, I'm working graveyard shift, so I start at 9 o'clock at night. Uh, it's it's uh, it's around 8 o'clock at night. I'm, I'm in the locker room, and I'm changing into my uniform, and my wife calls me, and she says, Hey, uh, Joshua, which is our, our oldest son, uh, he was about two years old at the time. She said he just fell off this, this slide. Um, he was playing with his cousins that were over at our house, uh, and he's holding on to his arm. He's screaming. He's crying. I think he broke his arm. I'm going to take him to the, ho- to the hospital. So I, I told her, I said, okay, I, I'm going to meet you at the hospital. It's, it's, uh, it's graveyard shift. Um, May 27, 2018 is a, a Saturday night. It's going to be slow. I will meet you at the at the hospital. Uh, once we break lineup, I'll go check the board, see what calls are holding in my beat. And uh, it's probably going to be slow again, right? It's going to be slow. Um, it's probably going to be nothing. And we'll, we'll I'll go and meet you at the hospital, make sure Josh is all right. So that was the plan. Um, I start lineup <clears throat> and uh, and we break What's lineup. Lineup line is, you know, we... Uh, um, you know the briefing you know the briefing right before you know okay. right before a like shift like roll call like roll call yeah now you mentioned that you got dressed at the station is that a normal thing uh for you guys is to uh keep your uniforms and everything there do some folks take their uniforms home or is there a directive on that uh, yeah everybody everybody changes out at you know at the station they change in and out of their uniform there no, nobody nobody would drive get into their peel private vehicle and and drive home in, in their uniform Okay. So you saddle up, you get geared up, uh, the kids headed to the hospital. So, uh, how's the shift start out? So the shift starts out with a domestic violence call holding in my, in my beat. Uh, and I'm partnered up with my buddy, Mike Muniz that night, him and I, uh, head over to that call and the, the domestic violence call, it was, it was a, it was a nothing, uh, you know, it was verbal only. And, and, you know, we, uh, we were about to clear the call and as we were clearing that call, um, dispatch gets on the air and she airs that there was a Hispanic male armed with a knife uh, running around the inter- uh, intersection of Tokayo and Hollister Street, which is on the other side of our division. It's not not in our beat. And uh, and he's chasing people and, and vehicles. He's trying to kick vehicles and he's armed with a knife. So, so how uh, far away is that from where you guys are at? If you're driving code three, how long would it take you to get there? Uh, code three, I would say maybe a, you know, good 
10 minutes. Um, you know, we were, we were, we were down into San Isidro. So I would say, uh, yeah, probably, probably, you know, less than 10 minutes. So since we're on the other side of the division, uh, we're expecting, you know, that there's going to pe- be people that, you know, are going to get there first before we do. So I look at my partner and we're like, yeah, let's, let's go ahead to that call. We were, we're shit magnets, right? That, you know, when I first started off, you know, I was getting involved in everything and, and, uh, people were like, damn, bro, you're a shit magnet. Every time you're working, you're always getting into some shit over here. So when that call came out, we're like, Hey, let's go, let's go handle that call. So we start rolling over there. And as we're driving the, uh, the dispatcher gets on the air again, she updates the call and she says, uh, border patrol, um, Border Patrol has one at gunpoint. So obviously down in San Isidro area uh, or down in Southern Division, there's always uh, Border Patrol agents and, and, you know, unmarked vehicles in marked vehicles. And uh, they're always driving around all that, all those areas. So they just happen to be driving by suspect chases the wrong uh, the wrong vehicle and, and they have them at gunpoint. So we get there, we get on scene. Me and my partner were the third San Diego police unit, um, on scene. There was a bunch of border patrol agents there. And when I remember, I remember getting out of the car, I was the passenger, um, on the, in the, in the vehicle. When I got out of the car, I remember seeing the suspect holding on to the knife and he was, man, he was a good, maybe three, I mean, he was like really close to this border patrol agent, maybe like five, five feet away. Ooh. And he yeah, had the knife too close. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about if he reached, if he just leaned over and reached his hand out, he probably could grab that border patrol agent if he, if he wanted to, but you know, the border patrol agent has him at gunpoint. Um, the, the, uh, the suspect is, you know, up, you know, five feet or so away. And he's kind of like, like, um, kind of like lunge, like not lunging, but like, um, yeah, just kind of like, leaning into him or like kind of leaning into him, you know, like, th- like kind of like threatening that he was going to like rush him. And the border patrol agent didn't shoot him. And, and I'm not, I don't Monday morning quarterback any, anybody, um, for whatever reason that border patrol agent decided not to shoot him, but we, we ended up firing, uh, multiple beanbag rounds. I think it was about 15 rounds we shot at the suspect who carries um, the less than lethal stuff is that something you get out of the vehicle with you got to go back and get it how do you guys determine who's going to carry that uh usually uh everybody uh, well i wouldn't say usually it just depends who who checks those those beanbag shotguns out um at the beginning of their shift if they're in the side of the car already and uh usually you know our our the way we train is you know obviously you're going to have you know, lethal force available, but you're always going to request for, you know, non-lethal, whether it's, you're going to, you know, set up taser folks with the tasers, folks with the beanbag, um, shotgun, and you, you, you kind of set that up. So I'm not, I don't even remember which officers were the ones that were shooting the beanbag, um, shotgun at the, uh, beanbag rounds at the suspect, but we impacted him multiple times. Any Uh, effect? No effect. Yeah, everything was ineffective. Uh, we fired four taser deployments. Um, three of them impacted the suspect. He just started ripping them out of his, you know, uh, ripping them off. And uh, I, I actually fired one of the uh, taser deployments and I missed. So I fired it. I missed, and you know, my adrenaline is pumping. And I remember, I remember taking the cartridge out, the spent cartridge. I remember taking it out, throwing it on the ground, and I was going to. Um, I was going to grab the the other cartridge to to uh, um, 
try to shoot shoot the suspect one more time with the taser. So as I was trying to pull the extra cartridge from the uh, from the handle, I guess the handle of the of the taser, I remember my three fingers, my my pinky and my ring and my middle finger on my left hand, they started going numb, and I couldn't get a good grip on that on that extra cartridge and I couldn't rip it out. So I transitioned to my handgun and the suspect is still kind of running around the intersection. Why did they, why did your fingers go numb? Was it from gripping it too hard, the taser too hard or what happened? You know, I think, you know, what they said was it's, it's the, my adrenaline so much, you know, your adrenaline is starting to pump up and, and, uh, and you start losing, you know, uh, um, what's the word? Motor skills. Yeah. Your motor skills. Right. And I just, I just remember it was a, it was kind of like a, you know, scary feeling. I was like, what's going on? Am I having a stroke? <laughs> you know, why, why, what's going on with this left hand? But nonetheless, I, um, I transitioned, I grabbed my handgun, um, the suspects running around the intersection and he, he stops and he's looking at, you know, three or four San Diego PD officers that are in front of him. And he's looking back and forth at all of us. And then he kind of takes like two steps, like, uh, he takes like two steps, like running towards us and, and then he stops and he almost, he almost did it. Like he was going to pretend like he was going to rush us, but he, he didn't, he was trying to like fake us out and he kind of steps back and he's looking at all of us again. And then I just remember the, the world just stopped spinning and, and time stood still for me. And, and he and I, he locked eyes with me and I remember thinking to myself, he's going to do it. He's, he's going to rush me right now. He's going to run towards me. And it was just weird. I mean, everything was just slow motion. I remember seeing everything clearly. Um, I went deaf. I heard absolutely nothing. And he did, he ran towards me. Um, I fired and two other officers started firing at the suspect. And when I was shooting, I remember everything was slow motion. I remember seeing the brass uh, uh, getting ejected from the right side of my gun. Like I remember seeing every round just kind of flipping slowly from the right side of my gun. And I remember seeing the smoke from my gun light rising from, you know, the, the front end of my gun and the, um, what'd you carry? Uh, uh, nine, nine millimeter. Like Glock Sig? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, Glock, Glock. 17. Okay. Yeah. So, and it, I almost, rem- I, I feel like I remember seeing the rounds going down. I mean, your brain, your brain is so amazing how it picks up and, and it slows everything down and it magnifies, you know, things. And it was just, it was a weird experience. I felt like I remember seeing my rounds, you know, going towards a suspect. Even one of the rounds, I, I, I remember thinking to myself, well, I missed that shot because it, it hit the ground. Like it was, it was just super weird, but, um, he falls to the ground and, uh, you know, we're telling, giving him commands to, you know, drop the knife. He's still, he's laying on his back, but he's holding onto the knife in his right hand. And this is after 15 beanbag rounds, three to four taser deployments and been shot at least, you know, three or four times at least. And he's still hanging onto the knife, non-compliant. Yeah. He, so he was, he was shot by, three officers and we, we all shot multiple times. So he, he, he had taken, um, he had taken a number of rounds, more, probably more than 10, 10 rounds. And he's still holding on to the knife. 
and we're you know telling him, hey, drop the knife. We got to get you medical attention. But he starts to uh, he doesn't drop the knife, but he starts like convulsing. And I remember seeing like his belly, you know, his belly kind of like shaking, and his his arm started kind of twitching the 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 arm that he had the knife in. And then he goes limp. And then we go in and we, you know, we take him into custody and, uh, you know, get the knife away from him. The fire department was staged right down the street. So they come in to start working on the suspect. And as they're working on him, remember, I'm only eight months out of face training. I'm a baby cop and I'm pacing back and forth. And I remember when I, after shooting, I remember trying to breathe. And on my BWC, that when the when they released the video, you could hear me like, <sighs> and I'm and I'm trying to get like oxygen in my lungs, but I felt like not enough oxygen was going in. I just I felt like I had just ran a mile. It was it was crazy. So, fire is working on the suspect. I'm starting to pace back and forth, and I'm looking at the suspect. The suspect's laying on his back, and his head is kind of tilted to the side in my direction, and he's tracking me with his eyes and I'm walking back and forth and I'm following him and I'm looking at him and then he just dies right in front of me. And I remember his eyes kind of fogged over like, you know, you just that you, you, I knew he was, he, he he had passed and yeah, it was a, it was a, uh, it was like that moment of like, Oh shit. I just, I just killed somebody. How long did it take you to get your breath back under control? I don't even remember. Probably. Yeah, I don't even I don't even remember. It's like hyperventilating. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, you're talking about BWC for folks, you know, the body worn camera and stuff. But what you're talking about earlier, it's that effect they call auditory exclusion, where you don't hear anything. You get like visual exclusion too. You just get the tunnels. Um, you don't see anything. Um, what had they prepared you for in the academy for a shooting? That's a good question. Um, I remember, I remember having our um, our officer involved shooting panel at the end of the academy, where you know multiple uh, officers that have been involved in officer involved shootings they come in and they talk about their experience and what the, the aftermath of it and what what happened. But um, I, I'm not I'm not sure if anything can really prepare you for that. I remember hearing about you know the the auditor, your auditory your visual the the tunnel vision during your um, you know, during a critical incident, you'll have the tunnel vision, or sometimes you have, you know, you have a the the uh, you know clear like view of everything that's going yeah. on. You know, like a macro vision, right? Um, so I remember them talking about that. I remember them talking about your motor skills, you know, going um, things like that. But I just I I didn't really pay not not that I didn't pay too much attention, but I was like, yeah, I don't know what that feels like. I don't even know what that is. So you know, you just you don't think that it's going to happen to you. So what I was getting at, too, is, you know, um, in a different kind of aspect, I had one bad week as a trooper where I had to give multiple death notifications. The worst news you can give to somebody, they never trained you for that. They never trained you how to do it, you know. And that's the thing is, do they, you know, do they train you? It's like when this happens, this is how you're going to feel. You're going to feel like, oh, my God, you're going to start second guessing yourself. You're going to start doing things like that. Because this factors into part of your story where you talk about, you know, wellness programs and stuff. Was there anything in place that after the shooting was over, you know, they, they isolate the scene? What kind of help do you start getting? Or is it more you got to give statements, you got to wait for uh, uh, IA or whatever you guys would use, whoever is your shoot team, you know, to come out? What things happened to you after the shooting happened? 
Yeah. So in the in the academy, I mean, I didn't really, I didn't, I don't remember hearing anything about what the process was like. But after my shooting, um, you know, I was taken back to the station. Uh, my peer support officer came, uh, and he's solid guy. He's now since retired. Uh, he had been involved in like four OISs in his thirty some year career, and he took me under his wing, you know, and, and kind of like, Hey, this is what's going to happen to you. And you, this is, he's going to walk, he walked me through all the steps that were going to happen that night. The, um, uh, you know, your lawyer is going to come down, you know, uh, they're going to review your BWC with you. They're going to give you the blessing to give the statement to, to, you know, homicide. If, if the shoot is good, they're going to tell you, go ahead and give your statement of homicide. Um, you're going to get taken back to the, to headquarters, transported back. Uh, you're going to have to submit your firearm, all your magazines. You're going to get photographs taken of you. And, and he's walking me through all these steps, but as a, as a young officer. And after that incident, you don't hear shit. You don't hear shit, right? You don't, you're, you're, you're hearing him, but it's not, it's not registering. And but everything he walked me, everything he told me was going to happen. He walked me through the whole thing. He was there for me the entire time, and and it, everything happened. You know the photographs. You know that was one thing that um, it was like a shocker because you you go back to the to headquarters and you're in this big white room. You feel like the suspect at you, some point, you, don't you? you? You are the suspect, right? Like you you are a suspect, but I really felt like I had done something bad. And, uh, and it, it was scary, you know, uh, you know, just uh, being a baby cop and I'm like, am I in trouble? Like, is this normal? Like, are they supposed to be taking this many pictures of me? Like, you know, you, you, they say, you know, face the camera, put your arms out, you know, flip them, flip them, you know, put your palms up, you know, palms down, uh, turn to your left, turn to your right, you know, face away from me, put your arms back out. And I was in my mind, I'm just thinking like, man, is this is this normal or am I in trouble? Like, this is a ton of pictures. It's the same type of pictures that we take of the suspect. You know, when we, before we take him to jail, the, uh, you know, the tattoos, the gangsters, you know, the, all the photographs of the guns, like it was just, there was just a lot going on. And, um, well, one, one thing I wanted to ask you about too, before you get down that, cause they, they obviously take your weapon, they take uh, your ammo. How quickly did they replace your weapon? You know, I don't remember how long it took. It was a couple of weeks before they gave me my my gun back, but they did give me a replacement. That's what I mean—a replacement night. gun. Yeah, yeah that, they gave me a replacement gun that that night. Because that's that's one of the key things too. We found one of the guys I was telling Murph I was involved in a shooting with. Um, first thing they did, which was smart, is even though you take the weapon, you get a replacement weapon right away because you don't want to feel like, um, you know, I've done something wrong. You, you've disarmed me now, right? So right. Um, but psychologically for you, where were you at? How, how soon was it before you were able to reach out to your wife and let her know what's going on? Because obviously you're you're not making it to the hospital tonight, not at any time soon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I I I don't even remember. I those I, I tried reaching out to her a couple of times, but she didn't have that good of reception inside the hospital. So eventually, I I reached I you know I reached reached her and and uh, told her. How does, uh, that, how does that conversation it. go like? I don't even remember. I don't, I don't, I don't, I remember trying to get a hold of her. And I remember when she finally answered, cause she, she actually called me back. And, uh, and I don't, I don't even remember what that conversation was like. I, I have no clue. Man, is, isn't it amazing the things that you do recall, but the things you can't recall? It's like you talk about watching the brass, you know, eject out of your Glock, watching it spin, you know, seeing those things. But then if I asked you what colors your uniform, you go, I don't know, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
your brain your brain just saves the importance i guess the important stuff right the it's, it's weird uh, so what happened? So this starts happening. What is life like now for the next couple of weeks? As you talk about, um, obviously, uh, at some point you're relieved from duty. You're not suspended, quote, in that sense. I mean, not like you've done anything bad, but um, do they do they have you come into the station? Do you go see a psychiatrist? What's the what's the standard, you know, SOP, standard operating procedure for after an officer involved shooting? So at the time it, there, I, I don't really think that there was uh, there wasn't much of a of a anything in writing. So the normal procedure at, at I think at the time was, you know, you're going to, you're going to be off for a little while. You're going to have desk duty, right? You're going to be placed on the desk. Um, the district attorney, the district attorney office is going to, uh, you know, uh, review the, the incident. They're going to clear you of any, you know, wrongdoing. And then it's up to the department on when they send you back out to the, to the street, obviously with, with, um, you know, they're going to talk to your peer support officer and say, Hey, how's, How's Mike doing? Hey, and he- not a knock against the police department, but you'd think San Diego PD, as many people as you had there, you got, like I said, all this stuff going on. Uh, it seems to me that this is something that would have arisen much earlier, considering the number of people that have been involved in shootings, both, you know, ones that resulted in injuries and the others that injured in death. You think that with all the things between accreditation and everything that goes on, you think there would have been a written policy for how to handle shootings. And, and you know what? The, there may have been at the time, it, but in 2018, but I didn't know of what that policy was and I didn't know what the procedure was. I just kind of went with the flow. Um, I know now that there's a p- procedure of, of, you know, returning to duty after an in-custody death or an officer involved shooting. But at the time, you know, I don't really know what, what the procedure was like. I just knew, I just know what I had, I had went through and what other people had, had gone through and, and, and nothing, it just kind of seemed that sometimes like some people would get involved in a shooting and they'd be back out in the street in, you know, two, three months. And then some other people like myself and the other two guys I, that I was in the shooting with, we were, we were on ice for like five months. How come? And I don't know. It just kind of, it just, I didn't know if at the time it just depended on did they give you updates on what's going on or were you just kind of left in the dark? You know, they, the captain, he would, uh, he would update us basically, Hey, we haven't heard anything. Uh, we, we still haven't heard anything yet or Hey, you're, you know, they're still, so uh, they're waiting to hear from the DA's office about, um, I believe they were waiting to hear do. from the, yeah, I believe they were waiting to hear from the district attorney's office on, you know, everything was all good to go and we're, we're going to be allowed what you learn about the suspect from the postmortem? Because um, somebody who takes that many rounds and stuff, you start thinking: Was the guy on anything? Was he mental? Um, what? How could this guy take what he took and still, you know, be able to survive at least, or, or not be incapacitated to the point where we had to use lethal force? Yeah. So I think uh, from what I remember is when the toxicology finally came back, he was uh, uh, there was uh, meth in his system. I, I think maybe like alcohol also, but I know for a fact there was, there was a meth in his system. Um, yeah. And, and the, uh, you know, w- once we got placed on, on ice and there was for maybe like about a week after the incident, there was marches that were being, you know, they were not marches, but there was like protests, like small protests and rallies from the, from the, OIS scene all the way to our station. So it just kind so of the suspect of black male. Uh, no, Hispanic, Hispanic male. So, uh, so it's curious. The reason I asked that is that, I mean, obviously that predates George Floyd, some of the, the protests later, but why was there a protest? 
You know, they, they, I just remember them saying that we never gave him an opportunity. Obviously there was the suspect's family and, you know, friends were, were involved in the rally, people from the community. You never gave him an opportunity to what, after being shot with a beanbag 15 times and tased four times. Uh, Right. Uh, that the, you know, the, their family member was suffering from, you know, mental illness and that we should have taken a different type of approach. And well, so it was let, just, let me stop you there for a second. So, you know, one thing I always like to ask those people say, okay, so what should they have done different? Okay. You got a less than lethal, right? So you, you brought that deployed, right? And those things, those things aren't filled with 15 beanbags. You got to reload or you got to have a couple extra, right? So if he's hit with 15 beanbags, either they're reloading all the time or you got two or three of those shotguns out there, right? Right. What well, else could you have Why didn't you just wing him? Yeah, wing him. Shoot him in the knee. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, did, yeah. Did you have canines? Uh, we did. I remember that night we had a canine en route uh, to the call. So they were they were on their way, but the the OIS had already occurred before he, can, he or she can get there. Yes. So I always wanted to ask all of these folks who are Monday morning quarterbacks, you know, swivel chair commandos. Well, okay. Tell me about your tactics. What would you have done differently? Mm-hmm. Right. What could you, I mean, you're looking back at it now, I know um, it's been ruled on, right? Um, we're kind of fast forwarding a little bit, but obviously it was ruled that you were justified in the use of lethal force, right? Mm-hmm. right. Uh, you had done everything you could to deescalate the situation. You'd given him multiple opportunities. Do you go back and second guess yourself though? You know, I never did. Um, I, I never went back and, and second guess myself. I knew, I knew from the moment, you know, the moment that it happened, I knew that I felt I, I don't know if this is going to sound bad, but I felt comfortable in what I had just done. I knew that I didn't do anything wrong. I knew that I had to do. Um, you felt like you followed your training. You, you'd done right. everything you could have. He'd, you'd obviously seen the beanbags and the taser, and you had even tried the taser. Right. But it was just, there's just all the other aftermath stuff that comes, which is one of them is, is, uh, you know, the Monday morning quarterbacking from, from people, the, uh, you know, the, the news and, and media and the community, uh, not knowing all the facts before the BWC was even released to the, to the public, you know, they were, they were just like, Hey, you know, San Diego PD is killing people. And, um, and, and then the physical, uh, effects afterwards. So for me, the uh, uh, after my OIS, I remember. <clears throat> I remember that night there was people that were calling me and texting me, and and there was three people that stood out. One of them was one of my um, one of my squad mates. Uh, he was on vacation at the time, but he had been involved in three OISs. He was on SWAT. Another guy was my peer support officer. He had been in four OISs, and then somebody else I met during face training. He had been involved in two, and they all told me. They all told me in their own words something very, you know, similar. They said, "Don't drink any alcohol. Give it a couple of days before you drink any alcohol. Um, don't watch the news. Don't read the newspaper. Stay off of social media. Stay off the blogs. Um, nothing positive is going to come out of any of that." And the third thing they told me was that you're gonna you're gonna feel like shit tomorrow. You know, your your body during this critical incident, your body created all that this adrenaline, you know, adrenaline, the dopamine, all the chemicals that your body creates, and it's going to be a couple of days before your body can flush it out. Drink a lot of water, work out, sweat it out, and uh, I took it to heart. You know, with, with at the, what point those, did you get that crash when that adrenaline dump? How long did that take before you had that crash? So my shooting was at around eleven o'clock on a Saturday night. I didn't get home until Sunday around one thirty p.m. So it was a long day, 
by the time I got home, I think that's when I was already crashing. Uh, you know, one thirty p.m. the following day, I was exhausted, tired, numb. Um, I get home. My son has a soft cast on because he ended up breaking his arm, and I remember walking in to my house, and I was so, I was like, I was like glad to be finally home. And when I walk in, my son, he was you know only two years old at the time. He's walking up to me, you know, with his arm out like to give me a hug, but his hand, you know, his right hand is in a little soft cast, and you know, he only came up to like my knee, and he hugs me with one arm on my leg. And I remember feeling absolutely nothing, just completely numb. Like I felt, I felt nothing towards his broken arm. I felt nothing from the hug. I felt, I just, I felt nothing, but I went into the shower, um, started taking a shower and I just started bawling maybe 10, 15 minutes straight. I just couldn't, I couldn't stop. It was just, it just came out, right? Just all your emotions and adrenaline or whatever was left inside me, just, it all came out. And I finally, you know, got out of the shower. I went to sleep and I woke up that same day around 6 PM. And what those OGs told me that I was going to feel like when they said, Hey, you're going to feel like shit tomorrow. I absolutely felt like shit. Uh, I had the worst headache I've ever had in my entire life. I was nauseous. I was starving. I was starving, but I was nauseous. Uh, I couldn't hold any food down. I couldn't eat that that day. Um, my headache was, it was worse than any hangover. It was worse than the tequila hangovers <laughs> that I've had. Uh, it, was, it was a very unique pain that I remember having in my head. Um, and I was numb. I, I didn't feel anything. And people were calling me and texting me, hey, bro, how you doing? How you feeling? And I was like, I think I'm good because I don't feel shit. I, I'm not scared. I'm not happy. I'm not sad. I'm not mad. I'm not nervous. I'm, I'm, I think I'm good because I feel nothing. And that feeling of feeling like shit, the headache, especially the headache and the nauseousness, I knew that that was normal because the OG said, you're going to feel like shit. I was expecting it to go away after a couple of days, but it, it never did. Um, the headache stayed every day. Um, the nauseousness, that the uh, that numbness, uh, that was every every single day, and I kind of lived that way for about you know a good week or two uh, every single day <clears throat> until finally, uh, you know, pe- people always want to he- they want to take you out for drinks and they want to hear the firsthand story from the shooters, right? They want to hear you know they want to hear from the from from the uh, from the source. So, you know, I, it was about a week or two when I finally went out. Um, to a function. And I remember feeling like shit. And I remember drinking my first beer after, after whatever, one or two weeks. And I remember the headache going away like, like a miracle drug. The, 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 you know, I wasn't even done with the bottle of beer that I was drinking and my headache was gone. And I remember being able to hold food down and I got my appetite back and I was like, laughing and joking. And, um, that became a normal part of my life. The alcohol, the beer every single day, because I had those symptoms. I had the the headaches every single day. Um, so I started drinking every single day and it wasn't a lot, but it was, it was more than, 
more than what I normally drink. You know, I could go, you know, at the time I could go a week or two weeks without drinking, especially during, you know, your work week. I didn't really drink during my work week. It was more on my weekends, but now it was, now it was every single day, two, three, four beers. And, you know, my wife recognizes it because she's like, you know, why, why are you drinking so much? Um, that didn't go well. Those conversations never went well because it, it turned into an argument. And, um, and I, I didn't really understand why I was feeling sick all the time, but I knew that the alcohol was going to fix everything every single day. <clears throat> um, I was able to play with my kids. Um, when I was, when I was sober, my temper was, was shorter. Um, noise that the kid, you know, my, I had two boys at the time. So I had the two-year-old and we had a new, uh, 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 my, our second son at the time. So whenever they would be playing or screaming or crying, that noise was too loud. My, 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 it, it, my brain, it felt chaotic, you know, home became chaotic. <clears throat> but when I was drinking beer, it was, it was good. You know, I was able to, I was, I felt like I could handle more stress on alcohol. So that's what I started doing every single day. Now your department, did they, um, and I think I know the answer to this, which is why we have you on the show, but, um, did they send you in for counseling? No. Yeah. They, they didn't send me in. They, they encouraged it. Um, it's not for San Diego PD. It's not mandatory after an OIS, <clears throat> but we'll, especially now we really encourage, you know, people to go and, and, um, so even to today, it's not mandatory that you go. Yeah, it's not mandatory, but the, I, I would say that I would I would say that the majority of people that get involved in officer involved shootings they at least check in with with our focus clinicians at least once. Sometimes they, you know they they do it a lot more, but it's, it's still not mandatory. So even for a return to duty, do you have to go through and have a, an evaluation? So we don't have a we don't have a return to duty. Um, policy after an OIS return to duties are usually for, and don't quote me on it, but return to duties are usually if, if a supervisor, um, sees the employee, like an obvious, um, something going on, obviously with the employee at work where they're not unable to perform their duties, then, uh, a return to duty evaluation will be performed, but that's usually done through the city. <clears throat> it's not, done through the department, I believe. So don't, don't quote me on it, but it's something to that effect. Wow. Just so, you, um, seriously, like Morgan said, you'd think an agency the size of San Diego PD would have those policies in place. Um, uh-huh. In DEA, it wasn't mandatory to go to counseling either. But uh, as I moved up in the ranks, I had, as an ASAC, I got a call one morning at 5.30 in the morning. They'd been doing an early search warrant. And a guy got three rounds off from a 45 before four agents tuned him up. And, uh, so we, you know, went through a policy, get them off site. Supervisor stays with them. We call our firearms guy out. He's bringing replacement meth weapons in, you know. And and I got there on site, and there's uh, one agent is just physically shaking, visibly shaking. The other two, they're nervous. You can see them pacing around. They're talking quick. You know, they're they're not quite sure what's going on. And the fourth guy is in his car taking a nap because he'd been an officer involved shootings a couple times before as a as a deputy U.S. marshal. But when it came to counseling, you know, you bring them all in and say, guys, I, you know, we're going to get you some, uh, go down and see the counselor. And the guy we had at the time, we trusted pretty well. And uh, the one that was asleep in his car, he said, I'm not going to that. I said, well, 
I think you're an agent and I'm an ASAC. I think you're going to go and I'm going to drive you down there. And so I would drive them down. And it wasn't our policy. It was mandatory, but it was my policy because when I was in a shooting, when my partner got shot and the informal was killed, I didn't go to, to counseling. And I had dreams about him being shot because it's your partner, you know, until I retired from DEA in 2013. I haven't had any dreams since then. And, and the funny thing is we had Kevin on, my partner. He was one of the first guests we had in the first year of this podcast. And he and I had never talked about the shooting in, in 1989 until we had him on the podcast about two years ago. So it's, you know, was I right or wrong? I don't know. But I felt like based on my experience, I wanted those guys to go in at least Go in and just meet the guy. If he says, you know, if you want to tell him to kiss your ass and walk out the door, well, at least you went in and talked to the guy. So let's let's rewind a little bit, or let's let's do that because I want to talk about the others because there's a big story in between this. So from the time that the shooting happened and you decided, hey, beer is good and people are crazy, you know, the old uh, song there. Um, Billy, what's his name? I can't think of the country singer. I just spaced out his name. But um, uh when did you start? When did the drinking really pick up? Was it a couple weeks into uh, you know you being on the sidelines? Or I hate to say on ice because almost on ice sounds like you've done something wrong. We've put them on ice. You know, it's like administrative leave. You know, something that's kinder, gentler. But it's like being on ice is almost sounds derogatory in a sense too because it's like uh, we put them on ice. We you know when so when did the drinking really start uh, escalating? Um, I would say I would say. Uh after that first, after that first drink, when when I went out to that function uh, for the first time and I drank alcohol, because I, I really listened to what those OGs said. They're like, "Don't don't drink any alcohol, you know. Give it a uh, you know, give it some time." So I, I I I listened to them, you know, and I and it's even to this day, I, I think that's still good advice. You know, don't drink any alcohol for a couple of days or a couple of weeks. Like give it, give it some time, give your body some time, be, be, uh, be good to your body during that, during that time. But, um, after that first drink, when I realized, man, that beer just took away my headache, brought my appetite back. I'm feeling good. Um, it, it was every day after that, every single day. Uh, and I, and I, I wasn't getting drunk every day, but I was drinking two, three, four beers where again, normally, you know, uh, I was drinking nothing, you know, throughout the week. So, <clears throat> so it was a, it was a, it was a big increase, uh, for me. So by the time, I mean, and does it get progressively, did you get to a steady state during that five months that you're, um, you know, not at work, uh, or does it reach a steady state or does it get progressively worse? Yeah. So it, it kind of, it kind of just stayed every single day. I was still getting the headaches. You know, I was trying to figure out, you know, I was take, I'll take naps, drink caffeine, aspirin, Tylenol. Like I was watching my diet, trying to figure out if any of that was contributing to the headaches <clears throat> and nothing was, nothing worked. The naps didn't work. The aspirin didn't work. Um, but, and, and when, you know, just to go back on, on the comment that you said about being on ice, I felt, I, I think I used that term because for me, it felt like I was punished. It felt like, uh, I was like, well, this, this shoot is good. You know, the DA finally came out and said, yeah, the, the shoot is good, but we're still on ice. Like I'm still, <laughs> they gave me an acting detective position. So basically I'm, I'm doing, I'm on desk duty. And I'm only eight months out of phase training, right? So I'm I'm used to being out there and and getting involved in stuff every single day. And now I'm sitting behind a desk. I'm like, man, this life is boring. <laughs> and not only that, but I have a headache every single day. So I'm at work. I'm just like looking at the clock, waiting for 
you know, me to get off work so I could go have a beer and start feeling better again. So that's what we, that's what I did for, you know, those four or five months that I was, you know, that I was on, on ice, um, until I finally got released. Now <clears throat> my peer support officer, my sergeant, uh, and th- there was, there was a number of people that would come and check on us. Hey, how you doing? How are you feeling? And I was such a brand new baby cop that I didn't, and I didn't hear anybody talking about having headaches after an OIS, feeling nauseous. You know, I didn't hear anybody talking about that. So I think as a baby cop for me, I, I didn't want to be the first one. I didn't want to open up that can of worms. I didn't want to. I didn't want to look weak, look like I couldn't handle it. Again, I'm I'm brand new, so I just kind of said like, yeah, yeah, send me back out to the street. I'm ready to go back out. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling fine. Everything is good at home, and and it, it wasn't. But that's that's just what I said. And now that I'm at the wellness unit for San Diego PD, you know, I I tell our peer support officers and even you know other officers like, hey. You could have the best peer support officer to go and talk to an officer after they've been involved in a shooting, but they are only as good as that officer allows them to be. And a lot of it is a lot of it is breaking the stigma. And that was that was me. I I bullshitted my way through, you know, everybody nobody knew what was going on with me because I, I was a good bullshitter. I was able to hide it well. Anybody call you out on your drinking during that time? Just my wife. And and even my wife, you know, there was times where she didn't realize how much I was actually drinking, you know, we could be at functions, you know, family functions and stuff. And, you know, she's not following me around all, all day. So you could, you know, you could easily pound two, three beers and, and she thinks that that's your first one. Yeah. Nobody, nobody, nobody paid attention. So from the shooting, how long were you not at work before they brought you back in this limited duty thing? I I know it was five months before you're back on the street, but how long were you actually off work? Um, before they brought you back uh, and that desk job, I think I think I was completely off work for maybe a good week, week and a half. Okay, maybe, yeah. Well, um, so you get through this because this leads up into other things. So you get through this, and now, now when you've finally been released after five months, were you allowed to talk uh, to the other officers involved? Were you allowed to talk about discuss this case with others, or was there any kind of prohibition? Um, yeah, we were able to talk about it because we already had given our statements to homicide, to, okay. to our homicide unit. So we were, we were able to, I believe we were able to talk about it. Nobody ever told us that we couldn't. So, okay. So now you get back out on the street. Um, you're finally released. What, what's it like to finally get that news to say, Hey, guess what, Mike, um, we're putting you back in uniform, putting you back on the street. So, um, it was it was wonderful. It was wonderful news because they're like, you know, do you want to start next week? And I'm like, no. How about we start today? <laughs> you know, and they're like, well, how about tomorrow? I'm like, all right, let's do tomorrow. So, um, I was ready to get back out there. Um, do you have to go back through any kind of retraining, seeing as how you were newly just out of the academy, or did, were you able to go right back and pick up where you left off? Yeah, just no, there was no no retraining. I just went went right back into the field and started getting involved in everything again. Just you know, back. Back where I left off, you know, the foot pursuits, the vehicle pursuits. Me and my buddy, we worked well together, so it was it was it was a good time. What about the headaches and the drinking? Every day, every I had the I had the headaches, the nauseousness every day, um, that numbness, that feeling of of really no feeling. That that uh, uh my my relationship with my wife, my marriage started taking a hit. Um, 
because there was there be, it quickly became a lack of communication. I didn't really she didn't understand what was going on with me or why I was acting so quiet sometimes. Um, why my fuse was so short when the kid, why, why I, I, um, uh, why I felt like home was so loud with the kids and screaming and yelling and laughing. It, it was just, it was just chaotic. My fuse was short. And, uh, so I, I, the main reason, one of the main reasons I would say that I wanted to get back to work was to, to kind of get away from, from home. Um, home life just was chaotic. Like I felt like I couldn't handle it anymore. So when I finally went back out to the street, I started picking up all the overtime that was available because it was work was easier to handle than, than home life. But, but you still had your headaches even after going back to work and everything else, right? Yep. Still had the headaches. Um, I'd wake up with them fall asleep with them. Sometimes I'd develop them right in the middle of the day. If I didn't wake up with it, it just, it was just, it was every single day. The Man. bad news is how long did this last? Uh, you got a headache right now. I got a headache right now. I'm <laughs> drinking a beer right now. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> we thought that was uh, coffee. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was, uh, I, I would say, um, I don't want to give the rest of the story away, but I would say 18 months from my first OIS to the, to the, where I finally went, decided to go get help. It was literally every single day. I don't remember not having a headache during that ever. Well, let's, let's talk about that. Let's put a pin in that for a second. Again, this this is like Rick Rambo. This is this is the end of part two. So uh, we're going to go part three. We'll come out next Monday, and then we'll have part four on Tuesday. But you know, like I said, Murph, we got ninety minutes into this, and it was like there's just no way. I mean, we called a timeout. We said, "Hey, look, let's end this one here," because at ninety minutes we hadn't even scratched the surface. And I think, you know, it just it just goes to what people really go through. A shooting is bad enough, mm-hmm. uh, but then when you get these things that can't, you know, you start going, "Why can't you help me? I've got this headache." Yeah. You know, and it just, and then the only way to solve it was drinking, you know, yeah. so that led to issues. And so we're not even to the, you know, where he start, starts talking about recovery and what he's doing now. So, you know, things are bad at home. He's covering it up at work, though, which a lot of people do. A lot of people cover mm-hmm. at work. And you and I have talked about this. I mean, it's it, it was the old macho thing is, hey, I'm good. I don't need any help. You'll be fine. I'll just get back to work, only to realize that damage just continues to build and build. And then years later, when it happens, you go, but why did this happen? It's because you didn't recognize it early enough. Exactly. And, and, and as Mike said, he's trying to self-medicate. Now, did he know that's what he was doing at the time? What he knew was it got rid of the headaches, but you can see where that leads to, and you'll hear more about him in the next uh, next two episodes with him. But once again, you heard at the beginning, if you're in any type of psychological or mental distress, a national hotline, 988. Like Morgan said, don't go it alone. There's somebody there 24-7 waiting to get you some help. Never go it alone. Never go it alone. So, hey, guys. Well, thank you. This is the end of part two. We'll come out with part three next Monday. But once again, thank you guys for hanging in with us and for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Never Go It Alone Call 988 Game of Crimes. Yeah.